Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, September 15th, we are studying Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 1 to 19. Moses gives instructions concerning criminal punishment, leveret marriage, just measurements, and other matters pertinent for life according to God's will in the promised land. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor James Yonkers. Pastor Yonkers serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Danville, Illinois. Pastor Yonkers, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Well, thank you. It's good to be here, and I look forward to discussing these many topics with you in the short pericope. Now, there are quite a few different topics in our text today. It's in Deuteronomy 25. What should we know about Deuteronomy and the surrounding context as we prepare to look at the text today? You know, Deuteronomy is the second uh, giving of the law of Moses. It was best known for it. That's why it's Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy the second, and so here's Moses is giving the people another recitation of the law and how to live as they're preparing to enter the promised land. Of course, Moses never enters the promised land; they're led into the promised land by Joshua. But Moses is still performing his duties given to him by God and preparing the people for when they do cross the Jordan. And so they can live a godly life in the new kingdom, which God will establish for them. Mm. We're here toward the end of Moses's second sermon in the book of Deuteronomy. Back in chapter 5, Moses began a very long sermon that's continued through this chapter and into the next, in fact. And toward the end of the sermon, it seems that Moses has picked up a variety of topics. Sometimes they don't always seem connected one after the other, although I, I think there are some connections we can draw. Is is there any theme that you see running through this chapter, any way that these particular laws seem to go together? Well, you know, when we look at this, we have the, the two kingdoms, and this is really dealing with the kingdom of the left, the kingdom of civil justice and civil government. But that's an important kingdom, which is the one we live in here on this earth, in this plane. And give, God gives authority to all all authorities given by God. And here it's explaining the, the authority of the civil government and how to live in this world in a godly way mm. to bring about peace and quietness as we pray in the college for peace. Right. Much of what we will read today, as we will see, there's theology involved, of course, but there's also just, this is good government. There's a lot of very, what you might call common sense, practical applications of the law of God to the life of people, particularly for Old Testament Israel. As you said, much of what we're going to see is 
civil law for Old Testament Israel. There's theology in play that we still apply for us as Christians, but that civil law doesn't necessarily always apply in quite the same way, yet there is great wisdom throughout this text. So we're picking up Deuteronomy chapter 25, beginning at verse 1 today. Moses is speaking. If there is a dispute between men, and they come into court, and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more, lest, if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight." You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, Then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his ha- brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. When men fight with one another, and the wife of the one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him, and puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eye shall have no pity. You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. That's our text for today. That's Deuteronomy 25, verses 1 to 9. Pastor Yonkers, the first three verses deal with the matter of a dispute between men who have come into court. There is a penalty given, and there are limits put on to that penalty. What do we see in these first three verses? Well, first you see that uh, the authority of, of the government is limited not by the people, but by God. For Their authority of the civil government comes from God. And secondly, we really want to look at the, the, the stripes and how many stripes were given. 40 stripes and with, with that it's hard not to think about jesus at his crucifixion and how many lashes did Pilate give him 40 the maximum he was allowed to give under that jewish law which he still lived under in that time hmm. well let's talk about that first point that you brought up that within these verses we see that the authority of government comes not from the people but from god how do we see that within this these three verses and, and why is that an important thing to keep in mind well that's that's why god god can give these instructions to them 
I mean, the the Israelites did not live in a democracy like we do here in America. They did not live yet in a, a, a land ruled by kings and queens in a monarchy, but they lived in a, a government which was ruled by God. That's why they had the judges, Joshua and the like, that led them. And so God here also establishes and gives authority to the civil government, which would be those not in the temple leadership, but the civil leadership, giving them authority to judge over civil matters such as he cheated me in the market or whatnot. And then he also limits their power. They can't give more than 40 stripes to a person uh, on a smaller matter, which is what we're talking about here with the... uh, it would be petty theft probably today or something of that nature. I'm not a legal expert. Forgive me if I'm wrong. Uh, And that's what we're talking about here. But it's still under God's jurisdiction for God is the ultimate authority of everything and is the judge over all. Mm. But one of the things that I, I think is important with when it comes to recognizing God as the authority who gives the authority to government here is just to see that in this case, and this we've seen in Deuteronomy in several places, that the punishment is meant to fit the crime. And so, I mean, it does it does say in verse 2 that he is to be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. 40 is given as a maximum sentence in the third verse. But the way verse 2 reads is that you don't have to give 40. You can give less. And if the offense isn't worthy of 40 lashes, then by all means, give less. And I think, you know, within that, the limiting of the stripes that are are given, and particularly saying this must be done in proportion to the offense, it is a reminder to the, the judge that is carrying out the sentence and giving the sentence. It's a reminder to that judge that he's not there doing what he thinks is right. He's not there as the final arbiter of justice, but he is there under the authority of God himself who has commanded these things to be done in this way. And it, on the one hand, it prevents that judge from just going off on the deep end and doing whatever he wants and taking out his own anger or his own sinful desire for vengeance on this man who, yes, has committed a crime, but still needs to be treated justly according to what he has done and not according to some sinful human standard of this is what I think should happen, so I'm going to just go with what I think. No, God stands over the whole process. And and our, our system of government here in America has that same thing where the judges are given, in this case, the, the general sentencing should be between this and this, and it allows the judge to kind of decide between that, between those curves, mm-hmm. between those limits of what is right in this case. And I think when you're talking about up to 40 lashes, not more than the 40 stripes, that, that that's where it's that this discernment of the judge can come into play in this law and in ours today. Mm, right. And I, I do think, you know, it's, it's also worth pointing out that what is described here is a very, you know, maybe a courtroom scene is perhaps a, a little bit anachronistic, but th- this is a legal proceeding that we're talking about. This isn't 
mob vigilante violence or something like that. This is a prescribed way of dealing with a crime that has been committed, the justice system, and then the punishment that is given in a very ordered way. Once again, showing for the people of Israel that their justice isn't their own standards, but it is given by God's word. Now, I I do think that it's important still today, even though this civil law does not apply to us, this is not the law that governs the United States that's written here in Deuteronomy 25, this matter that authority comes from God and that the government authority is still under the authority of God, anyone who is given a a position of public authority in our country or any country would still do well to recognize that God is the authority over him, lest that person in authority just, again, take that authority wherever he or she sees fit. Yeah, and and Martin Luther wrote a lot about that during the peasant war. You know, he he wrote the Christian nobility, uh, telling the nobility, be nice to your peasants. Then he wrote to the peasants when they took that too far and went, hey, peasants, I didn't say they're not an authority over you. I said they should be good to you. And, and so Luther addresses this, you know, the limitations and the just and the being just and limited authority because all authority comes from God, ultimately not from anyone party or any one judge. Mm, right. Yeah. The, the other thing that I think is, is very well protected within these verses, again, from a human perspective, is the, the humanity of both the judge and those in the justice system and the criminal. And, and I think you see this in the way Moses ends verse three, where there is a concern that your brother be de- degraded in your sight. We don't want this to happen within the justice system, that even as a a just punishment is carried out upon the criminal, there's still this reminder that he is a human being who's created in God's image and is to be treated as such even in his punishment. And so you're not to just go off the deep end and start beating him without any regard for his humanity. 40 is set as the upper limit, lest he be degraded. And at the same time, I think there's a protection within that for the humanity of the judge or the one carrying out the punishment, lest he just start going off the handle and start beating this guy. And I mean, that does something to that person who's who's carrying out that punishment when his anger just goes unchecked. I think the humanity of both parties is upheld through this law. I think that's a good point in, in that you know, we're all sinners, and so we have that sin on us, but we are all still created in God's image, and we are meant, we are set apart to be God's people. And so I think that dignity comes to us, given, again, given, where's that dignity come from? It comes from God, not, not from ourselves, but from God, which is why he is the ultimate authority, and he doesn't wish to see any of his children punished, but he wishes to see them change. No, we can take it to our theology where he doesn't wish to send anyone to hell, but he wishes we all would be saved through Christ. Here he doesn't wish anyone to be a criminal, but he wishes them all to come back and live under the law in peace and quietness. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned that this first law, given the, the beatings, limiting it at 40, that there's a, a connection here to Jesus and the punishment that he receives under under Pilate. What's the what's the connection? What does this have to, to teach us about the suffering our Lord went through? 
I'll re remember when Jesus is before Pilate, the first thing Pilate does, one of the, fir one of the first things is, is he's sent off to be whipped. And how many times is he whipped? Probably with a cat of nine tails is 40 times. And this law is why it could be 40 no more, because that's that's the, 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 the law given here. And since the law given here is Pilate still in Judea, in Judea, he's still in Jerusalem, and so he's still having the Jewish law, and so he's abiding by the Jewish law as he sends Jesus to be beaten as punishment without even being convicted. Mm. Well, and what's striking about what happens to Jesus is, regardless of the number of stripes he received, there's still that injustice that happens. And that's where the, the end of verse two, I think, is significant, that Moses commands that the person be beaten with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. In reality, the number of stripes that Jesus deserved was zero. He had committed no offense of his own. And, and yet, because of the sin of the whole world that he had taken upon himself, he receives these stripes, this beating, in our place. And you see that, that great exchange that, that happens with Jesus on the cross. He takes our sin and its punishment. We receive his righteousness and his blessing. And there we see what we deserve in a proportion. Our sin is what Jesus took on for us men and for our salvation. Yeah. And there, as we see Jesus, we see what should be done to us. And yet we see that instead of that, we receive what Jesus should have, which is the eternal life and the honor of before God as his children. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's, we've mentioned this hymn on multiple occasions on Sharp Iron through the study of Deuteronomy and the hymn Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. One of the stanzas begins like this. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. And of course, that, that points us finally to the cross and the, the death that the Lord receives there. But even in the beatings, as we're connecting it here with Deuteronomy chapter 25, there too we see, as you pointed out, this is what our sin deserves. But our Lord willingly takes it upon himself, and he he gives to us his blessing, the life and forgiveness that he has earned in our place. And so there on the cross, as justice is carried out upon Jesus for our sins, we receive justification in God's sight. We are declared holy and righteous. Any more on the, the beatings before we, we move on, Pastor Yonkers? I, I think we've covered the beatings pretty well. You know, All right. We've covered this is kind of a small, smaller issue court where it's limited by by what the judge can do and up, up to and above uh, up to but no more than the 40 uh, stripes as it says in our text all right so the next the next law given is one verse long verse four says you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain what is moses talking about here well some of the commentaries mentioned you know letting letting the, the dignity also even of all creation we are in dominion over the earth but we are also to respect the earth but i i here go let let the ox do its work it's put into the into the mill to tread and to grind the grains so they can make the bread let it do its work do not hinder it from its work and do not also dishonor even the ox even a beast of burden it has dignity because it is made by God. 
Certainly, we, we have seen within the book of Deuteronomy a care not only for humanity, but also for the rest of creation. We, we saw, for example, in the matter of warfare that the Lord did not give his people to just cut down every single tree and lay waste to the land. There's There has been a concern in Deuteronomy for the role that humanity has been given to care for creation. And this matter of not muzzling an ox while it's treading the grain, I think, falls into that. And, and especially then that as that ox is doing its work that it's been given to do, that ox should reap the benefit. So a, a muzzle on an ox while it's treading the grain, to, to tread the grain would have been to, to make the wheat and, and various grains into things like flour so that bread can be made. And if you've got an ox pulling along the millstone, well, that ox is going to want to eat while it's working and it needs that nourishment to keep working. And so, you know, just from a very practical sense, it makes sense for you as the landowner to let your ox eat. Yes, that will mean that you have a little bit less flour to make bread, but it means you will have a healthier ox who will be able to tread the grain for you. And so both parties end up benefiting here as humanity allows the, you know, the animal that's doing the work to benefit as well. Both parties benefit. Yes, I think we go back, you know, let the punishment fit the crime here also, you know, let, let the benefit of work fit the work that is done. You know, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Sorry. Keep going. No, I, I, I like that connection. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it, the, the ox works and, and eats. So too, we work and we also receive the reward of our labor with not, not our, you know, I'm not going theological, just I, I serve my job. I get paid the wages that I, I was told I would. And Jesus speaks of the day laborers. He gives the parable of the man who goes out early in the morning, in the middle of the morning, in the late morning. And he gives them each what he said he would give them. So always make sure that at, if you're in charge, you give people what you say you will. And if you're a, a worker, giving them the uplifting that you deserve what you were promised. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So within within this law, there is a concern for the ox, but not only the ox. This ends up applying in a much broader sense to human labor as well. So for any any vocation that a person has been given to do, there is a benefit when that worker is paid good wages, due wages for, for the work that he has done. And that, again, ends up benefiting both the employer and the employee. Yes, the employer doesn't end up with as much, maybe with as much money in his pocket at the end of the day because he's given the wage to the worker. And yet by doing so, the worker is able to benefit, the worker is able to provide for himself and his family, and then gets to keep on working. So the employer benefits as well. So just like the the relationship between the ox and its owner, so the relationship between employee and employer paying a fair wage, that is helpful to both parties. And St. Paul even takes this verse and applies it very specifically to the relationship between the pastor and hearers, that it is good for a pastor to receive his wages from what he preaches. So St. Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 25 in 1 Corinthians 9. He begins in verse 9 of that chapter, "'For it is written in the law of Moses, "'You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain.'" Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. 
if we have sown spiritual things among you? Is it too much if we reap material things from you? And Paul continues, and he ends up describing why he himself did not make use of that right. But he upholds that right as a part of the mutually beneficial relationship between a pastor and hearers. As the pastor preaches the good news of God's word to the hearers, it is right that the hearers support the pastor in his in his preaching with material things. And again, a mutually beneficial relationship, all from this one little verse here in Deuteronomy 25. Well, you know, I, and, and that's, that's good. I've only recently come to understand the importance of that because my, my first call w- was to a very small congregation. It was officially half time. There's always that concern. Am I giving the church enough time? Because, you know, in the ministry, 40-hour a week, is, you, you laugh at that because you just serve as much as you need to to meet the needs of your people. And in the olden times, in the back when, in the early part time of the synod, we pair pastors with, with from the for the fruits of the field and from the fruits of the wilderness in our hunting. So we bring the, the pastor a deer. We bring the pastor a little bit of corn, and this would provide for his family. And that that that's all we need as pastors. But to make sure that the needs of our pastors and our those who teach us the word of God are provided for us, they can continue on in their ministry. Because it does get hard sometimes. Hmm. That's right, and and there is serve with joy. Well, that's right, and there is there is great joy for both pastor and people in this relationship. What what joy it is for the pastor to be able to proclaim this good news to his people, which he he desires to do to care for his people with the word of God, and to be able to do so without worry about where his meal is going to come from or you know how he's going to be able to provide for his family because he knows that these people whom he's caring for, they are also caring for him in return with these material goods. And as you said, over the, the course of history, it's it's been provided in a variety of ways. It's not just through the offering plate, but there are people who, who share you know, deer sausage or tomatoes from the garden or whatever produce they may have. And, and again, what a, what a joyful thing for pastor and people as they, they work together in that way. And one of the joys I have is when someone brings me a squash or a zucchini or a cucumber. I guess those are all squashes, but brings me from the home garden. I always love that. Or I always love to tell the story of my friend who got married and married a farmer, the girl, and received a deer for their wedding. And we, we named it dinner. And let me tell you, dinner was very good. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah. And, and again, just the, that point that, that when the, the hearers support their pastor, he is able to preach the word. This is a joyful thing. A lot of wisdom here from Deuteronomy chapter 25. We're going to pick up more of this chapter on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking about Deuteronomy chapter 25 with Pastor James Yonkers. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, September 15th. We're studying Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 1 to 19 with Pastor James Yonkers. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Danville, Illinois. Pastor Yonkers, prior to the break, we looked, we looked at the first four verses, the matter of criminal punishment, as well as payment for those who labor. Beginning in verse 5, there's an extended section, and the title in the ESV says, Laws Concerning Leveret Marriage. Before we get into the details, just describe what's what's going on here. What is the overarching concern when it comes to this, what's called leveret marriage? Well, we have to put ourselves in the context of, of that culture. God's word's eternal, but culture changes and remember back then, a widow would have been in a, in a dire straits, especially if she had children, or I guess in this case, there were no children, but she would have been in dire straits. And so this law, which is being talked about, was to provide for the welfare of the widow and also for the continuation the, and the procreation still of her first husband's line and lineage. Remember the importance of... Uh, of genealogy in, in the Jewish tradition and in many other ancient traditions. We don't think about it so much today, except we still think, you know, that's my boy. You know, we're, we're all happy when we get a son. We go, he's going to carry on my name. That used to be a much more important thing, even for livelihood and even for the sustenance of your relatives. Whereas today it's just, hey, I get my boy. I mean, my, bo- my son has my name and I'm very happy about that. It's a family name. But back then, it was to provide for the welfare of the widow, of the widow, and to make sure she's taken care of. Mm. All right. So we have a concern here for providing for a widow, and especially also, as the the text says, to provide a son for the brother who has died, and particularly for the people of God in the Old Testament. When you go back to Genesis 3 and the promise of the seed, every every time there is a child born in the Old Testament, there is that great hope. And so the, you know, and we'll see this coming up when it comes to the, the matter of having children is going to become important again in the next law that's given. So this is a part of the concern when it comes to leveret marriage. And in leveret marriage, that title comes from a word, it just means brother-in-law. That's what we're talking about, is when you've got brothers who have dwelt together, one of them dies and he has no son, then that living brother-in-law has a, a duty that he can take to his brother who has died by taking the brother's wife as his own and having a child 
by her that ends up belonging to the brother. So this this law has a both a positive. This is how you you go about it when the brother-in-law is willing. And then here's how you go about it when the brother-in-law is not willing. Help us into that first side when the brother-in-law is willing to take this duty on. Oh, when the brother, when the brother-in-law, when the brother of the dead husband is willing, he takes his brother's wife as his own, and then their first child is then considered to be the uh, child of his brother, and would continue on his brother's line, and be the one to inherit all of his brother's property and name and everything that goes along with that. Mm. And that that that's what would happen if he does choose. Then if the brother and the, the his new bride would have a second child that would then be his the, the second husband's uh, lineage jesus is asked about this by the pharisees when he's asked asked by them you know remember the woman who is marries a brother and then marries another the other brother and then they ask well who, whose wife is she in heaven and jesus goes you missed the point that's right. There is no marriage in heaven. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, the, it's the, the in Matthew chapter twenty-two and in the parallels in the 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 synoptic gospels. This it's it seems like a strange situation to us, perhaps. But they, the Sadducees, there are bringing up this very text from Deuteronomy twenty-five, and and the the interesting thing for that situation that they they make up is that you have these seven brothers who end up marrying the same woman and none of them have any children. So the, you know, the question of like, well, whose wife is she? They pose it to Jesus thinking, thinking that they have disproved the resurrection because look, this would be ridiculous. And Jesus makes the point. You've got it all backwards, not the text. Moses had it right. You've got it wrong, Sadducees. And he makes the point to them that leveret marriage deals with this life and the needs of this life. The resurrection is something entirely different. And if you would believe the resurrection, dear Sadducees, then you wouldn't have this misunderstanding. And and we're not dealing with that text, but just a reminder that Deuteronomy 25, that provides the background for the situation the Sadducees bring up. This text also provides important background for what happens in the book of Ruth when when Boaz comes and ends up taking Ruth as his wife, it provides important background there. And, and you see something similar, not, not precisely the same, but something similar play out there at the gate of the city in Ruth chapter 4, which is described here. Again, it's not quite the same Every, not quite the same thing that's in play, but there's certain background. And that does bring us back to Deuteronomy 25, where we see the case where this brother does not wish to take his brother's wife. Uh, what happens there, Pastor Yonkers? Well, you know, it, it was, here's put very in a very dishonorable way if, if you're not accepting of this, because you're basically... Uh, killing off the line of your brother, which is not seen well. But also here, there are, are a couple of reasons why he might not. Maybe he can't afford his wife, uh, 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 his brother's wife. Maybe he can't uh, be a good husband to her. And so there are some options and reasons why this might not be done from a legal perspective. But with our, with our pericope, with what we're looking at, it seems that is assuming he is in a place but chooses not to and then we we read all sort we read the great things which happen or the not so great things which happen and what the woman is allowed and encouraged to do and we get into the sandals and even the uh 
disfiguring uh, of the man. Well, and so you see the the shame that is attached toward the unwillingness to take upon this duty for the the deceased brother, and and again there is there is that shame, and we shouldn't miss that that there should be a desire from the brother to perpetuate his deceased brother's line and be willing to take on this certainly sacrificial duty on his part. There is a sacrifice, but there should be a willingness. I do think it is important to at least mention, as you you started to, that there is the either the willingness or the unwillingness is allowed. There's not a command to the living brother: you have to do this, or you have sinned. What what happens to the the brother who refuses? You know, he's not given say a, a guilt offering to give, such that he needs to be forgiven for a sin. There's a penalty of shame, but he has not sinned in the sense that he has not broken a a commandment that has separated him now from the Lord. There's just this this human shame element to it. And I, I think that's important because you do see the matter of of marriage and its holiness and honor still being upheld so that, you know, there's not a you, you have to do this or else there is still the the honor given to marriage within this text. Yes, and I think that's important because who's the one who established marriage? It was God. God, from the beginning, established marriage, seeing Adam trying to find him a mate amongst the animals, going, no, that doesn't work. And so he, that's when he made Adam fall into the deep sleep, took a rib, and shaped and formed Eve, taking just as much time, just as much care, just as much love before breathing life into her, and then of course, Adam meeting Eve and saying, at last, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Mm, that's right. So we see a similar honor for marriage here, as, as well as the concern for the brother-in-law who has died to take his wife and, and you know, perpetuate his line. But when that doesn't happen, there's this great shame that is heaped upon the brother who is unwilling. The, the wife pulls off his handle, sandal, spits in his face uh, that's particularly seems very very degrading uh, and and then the the nickname you know something like I, I read in professor harstad's commentary shoeless joe here right he gets that that nickname attached to his house for the rest of his days you know there is shame involved there and and you see once again from all this the importance of perpetuating this brother's line any more comments on, on this section before we move on pastor yonkers I'll, I'll you, you bring up the sandal. Do we want to go there? Sure, go ahead. The tell, us little, tell us a little oh, about the sandal. Oh, with the sandal, you know, it used to be that's how you made deals in the marketplace or on the street. You know, not, now we just pull out the cash. We exchange cash on the street or whatnot, or we shake hands. Back then it was you, you swap sandals, which we think is very odd, but that was very normal. They would have understood that. And, and if you refuse to make the deal, then here's what, can come of that or if you refuse to honor the deal then here's what can come of that and that's what is given in the next section and what the uh in what the widow can do should he decline it and 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 spitting on someone that's a great disgrace even in today's world Mm -hmm. but in the ancient times they'll make them unclean they'll make them unable to go into the temple they'll make them unable to go and be a part of society until they cleanse themselves. Mm, That's right. So great shame is heaped upon the brother who is unwilling to perform this duty. Now, as, as Moses continues into the next law, 
beginning in verse 11, he brings up a situation where two men are fighting. The wife of one of those men comes into the fray in an attempt to help her husband, seizes the other man by the private parts, and the penalty described is cutting off her hand. I mentioned earlier that within Leverett marriage, there's a concern for the bearing of children. And I think that that's probably the connection to this next one is that the what the woman has done has she has taken away this other man's ability to have children. She has gone too far in her attempts to bring out justice. And so now there is a penalty ascribed to her. I, I think that's probably a, a good way to look at it here. Um, two men get in a fist fight. I might leave with black eye and, a, and a, maybe a broken finger. That will heal, and I can continue on to continue my livelihood to continue to support my family. But what what the wife does here is one one she touches an unclean part uh, of a person's body, which can be looked at. But also, she takes away that we talked about the this between the brother Leverett marriage, and now we're going here to the dishonoring someone in the marketplace. She now takes away that ability to give children to his wife. Mm. And that bearing of children is a very important thing in God's eyes and in ancient culture. There's no shame if you're you're barren. There's no shame if you don't have children or are not married, you know, but back then in that culture, but look at it from the scripture God's promised this line, and if something were to if if something were to have happened to that line, where is Jesus? You know, God made sure that line continued, and God made sure that Jesus was born of the line of everyone He said it, He would come from, of David, of Abraham, of Adam, and the like. Mm. But here, that woman would have taken away that ability, and so we see the punishment is that. Her hand is chopped off. Hmm. It's chopped off one because it's unclean because she she touched that part uh, of a body which is unclean, and also because she broke that line, preventing the man from carrying on the lineage of his fathers, the lineage of his family. Now, we should, I think it's worth pointing out that we're not, we don't have any specific evidence of this penalty being carried out within the people of Israel, which is, you know, perhaps the law did what Moses intended it to do and the Lord intended it to do was to prevent such crimes from happening. I, I think within, within this, you do see, uh, we, we mentioned earlier about the punishment fitting the crime and the matter of justice has certainly been a concern for the book of Deuteronomy in several places. I, I think here you see that idea of the punishment fitting the crime being what's really going on behind it. And it's less about, did they actually prescribe this or carry out this punishment or not? I, I'm not sure. But the, the point is, she has committed this serious of a crime, and the punishment needs to fit that. So whether or not a woman's hand was ever chopped off for something like this, that were not positive. And I, I've read commentators that suggest that this, again, is is really just setting more out the principle, make sure the punishment fits the crime. And they would have used this as a way, you know, for prescribing a, a certain fine that would have been fitting or, you know, some other sort of sentence. But you do see that seriousness when, ex when for example, you know, there's not literally a hand for a hand, this situation that just doesn't exist. How do you deal with it? 
you deal with it in the way that the punishment fits the crime in proportion to his offense, to use the language that Moses used in verse two, I think is, is what's going on here as well. So even though it is shocking, that's, I think, what's behind it and what we really need to, to hold on to. Uh, I do like that. You know, we have the punishment fits the crime. I lost, and the man lost a an important part of his body, and so now the the, the woman also loses an important part of her body. Right, and and again, whether or not it was literally ever carried out like that, we don't have that evidence, but we do no. see the seriousness of the crime that she has committed, and as, as we've said, very much connected to the matter of childbearing. As yes. the as the text continues into verses thirteen to sixteen, we we come to a more of an economic matter. The the command from Moses to not have two different kites kinds of weights or measures, but rather to have full and fair measures and weights. What's the, what's the concern in verses 13 to 16? Well, it's a basic economic concern. If I pay for a cup of, you know, with the oxygen trampling the grain. So if I pay for uh, a cup of flour, I I should get a cup of flour. Now this law doesn't prevent me from giving you a cup and a half when you ask for a cup and only charging you for a cup, but it does prevent me from giving only three quarters of a cup when you paid for a full cup or a full full measure. And so that's what this law is telling us to do. It's not limiting our, our generosity, but making sure we don't chintz and hold back and deal uh, on uh, in a dishonest way, mm. speaking to the eighth commandment, mm. right, and and also I think to the the seventh commandment that you know on the on the surface you know, you've got these say uh, you know what what they would have been it's kind of you maybe aren't sure but perhaps you've got two pieces of metal that look the same but because they are different sorts of metal they don't actually weigh the same and and the temptation then is to make use of the one that gives you a better deal so you place into the scale the weight so that you don't have to give the guy as much grain as you've told him you're giving and you end up cheating him there you've them I mean, in the seventh commandment you you've done something that looks right but in reality you've gotten something dishonestly you've gotten money dishonestly that you didn't actually give the the goods for and and this is you know certainly a a, a crime that maybe it seems small and yet, the Lord, in fact, calls it an abomination in verse 16. All who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. That's very strong language. Why, why such strong language for what may seem to be a small crime? Oh, we're looking at it from the human side. From, from God's eyes, sin is sin. And so you're either pure and holy or you're not. And, and the only way for us to be pure and holy, of course, is through the blood of Christ. But we look at on this earthly place, we're looking at earthly things. Well, it's not that big of a deal, but also it, it, it is because it's a direct violation of at least one, possibly two commandments as we're being both stealing and being dishonest. And so we can then you know we are breaking God's law. So it is important in that respect it's also important for good good government and the civil realm, which this law is all about. After all, if we have no measure of what what is uh, equal, what is just, what is right, what is fair, how on earth do we live as a society? 
Right. This, I mean, again, it, it seems small, but in fact, you, you have been unjust with your brother. You have lied to him. You have cheated him. You have not given him in proportion to what he has given you. Think back to verse four in the matter of muzzling an ox. You have not provided that fair trade as as he deserved and you've you've made yourself look good in the eyes of the world when in fact you you have not been you've been dishonest and and to do such things is in fact an abomination to the lord that the matter of honesty the matter of fair business dealings the lord cares about such things and i think we should take comfort in that that the lord does care about even the the small aspects of our life not i mean certainly there is the matter of we should fear god so that we listen and and do but also to love god in the sense that we we appreciate that he cares enough to go into even just the matter of, of business dealings, he cares about our lives enough to, to tell us what we should and shouldn't do. And, you know, again, it seems small, but when we treat others this way, then we've, we've cheated them out. And it's usually the, the poor who suffer most. They're the ones we think we can take advantage of. And, and they're the ones that end up suffering. The Lord would not have that among his people. He would have us treat each other honestly and fairly, even in our business dealings. And, and that's part of living in the Christian, living as a Christian in this, in the civil, in the civil realm. How, how do we do that? We do all things to the glory of God. How do we do things to the glory of God? If we're being dishonest in our dealings, the answer is we don't, and we're not. But, but, and that's the question before us: is how do we live out our life in our faith? And that's part of what we're called to do as Christians: mm. is to go and to be the salt of the earth, as our text said on Sunday. If you follow the the uh, electionary series and, and we do that by living according to god's word not because it avails us anything to do do good works but because doing good works is for the benefit of our neighbor and so we do good works or even fulfill our vocation well for the benefit of our neighbor now as architects concludes in verses 17 to 19 moses brings up the nation of Amalek, and he calls upon the people of Israel to remember what they had done, and then to, when the time comes, that they should blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. What What's going on in these last verses of our text? Well, remember, we've, we've gone over the carrying on of the line and lineage quite a bit in this text. Amalek was one who, had, who brought his uh, legions and attacked the Israelites in the wilderness, and so it's now as we're preparing the end of the promised land, leave behind those memories. Don't bring that that lineage, that line, those that time in with you. Instead, go and focus on the future, focus on Christ or on Yahweh, on God, the Lord, who's leading you into the promised land. Now, the, the situation that Moses brings up, particularly mentions it in verse 18, that Amalek attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you. If you look into Exodus chapter 17, beginning at verse 8, there Moses writes what happened as Israel was coming out of Egypt after the Exodus, they were on the way to Mount Sinai. Amalek came and fought with them. And again, this was unprovoked unannounced. They just decided, let's attack Israel when they're weak. And this is one that, that maybe you you remember from your Sunday school days, because it's, it's the one where the battle is fought and 
as Moses is standing watching over the battle, whenever his hands are raised, the people of Israel are winning. And when his hands become weary and start to fall, Israel begins to lose. And so uh, Aaron and Hur, they are upholding Moses's arms while Joshua is leading the the battle. And it's it's a very, I think, a famous account, and particularly as Aaron and Hur hold Moses' arms, probably in the shape of a cross, we see the, the cruciform shape of the victory of God. But that's the situation. That's what Amalek does. And here the Lord prescribes the punishment for Amalek as they tried to blot out Israel. Now the command comes from the Lord to Israel. You are to blot out their memory. And we, we see this happen. This becomes an important part of the account in 1 Samuel when King Saul refuses to do what the Lord says and what Samuel has has recorded. So this this little text here does come into play later in the Old Testament. Now we see the importance of, I think, a couple things, and maybe to, to tie this back toward the beginning of our conversation, the authority for Israel to do this comes from God. This is not Israel carrying out its own desires, but this is the Lord saying, here is what is just in regards of the nation Amalek, and here's how you are to carry it out, but it is God's justice that is being described here. And and, and it comes back to where's all authority come from? It doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from any one individual. It comes solely from our triune God. I was talk about this in my sermons. After all, what do we do at the very beginning of our divine services? We receive the freaking, we can have confession and we receive absolution. As a pastor, I, I forgive sins, but why can I forgive sins? I'm a sinner too. The reason is because Christ has given authority to forgive sins to the church and to his leaders and to, to announce the grace of God unto all of you and to give that forgiveness. Again, it's a question of authority. Because it comes from Christ, those very words, whatever sins you loose on earth are loosed in heaven, whatever sins you bind on earth are bound in heaven. When we sin the pew, when we receive that absolution, we don't have to worry, well, maybe it doesn't apply to me. Maybe pastor doesn't really have that authority. We know he does because of the word of Christ himself. Mm, that's right. So it's a matter of God's authority. And when God is the one giving the authority to Wipe out the memory of Amalek, that is to be done, but that is God's doing, not the people of Israel. They are simply the instrument he uses for his justice in this case. Pastor Yonkers, we've got about a minute left here. As you reflect on Deuteronomy 25 and the variety of topics we've talked about, how does this text help us to see Christ? I, I think we, we see it in the beginning with, with, with the stripes, with the 40 lashes. We see it in as we have our honor as created by God, as we talked about with the ox, we have our our hope, and we we see God working. Let's remember Amalek in the battle, as we see the foreshadowing of Christ with Moses's arms outstretched. Outstretched. We know Moses having his arms up had no effect, except God chose to make that a sign of His presence, a sign of His love and His grace to the people. And so as we read this law, we remember always then we also have the grace of God, which overshadows us all. And that grace is shown in the kinsman redeemer, which is what we talked about with the levirate marriage and with the way that God wishes all of us to treat our neighbor as ourselves, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And, and that's only secondary to loving God above all else. 
Pastor James Yonkers is pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Danville, Illinois, helping us today with Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 1 to 19. Pastor Yonkers, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you for having me today. Christ has fulfilled the law for you. He has received the punishment that you and I deserved. In him we are accounted righteous and we have eternal life. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Deuteronomy, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.